Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs. Founding a startup is stressful, difficult, and often painful at times. One of the most important skills of a founder, as many previous guests have said, is resilience. So after going through it all once, you would understand if someone never wanted to go through it all again. Today's guest is Nigel Verdon, who has started not one, not two, but three successful businesses. His current venture is Railser, formerly known as Rails Bank, and is pioneering something called embedded finance, best described as the financial layer of the internet. We'll talk in this episode about why you need to hire different types of people at different times, the difference between builders and operators, and why fintech may disappear. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners, and I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investment arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now on to today's episode. Nigel, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. It's uh, wonderful to be on the show. One of the first questions we ask is, what's in a name? Um, and your story about Rails Bank is really interesting because you changed names to Railser. And I just wondered, what was the thought process in that? Well, some of it is the association with uh, what we call old finance, as the word bank uh, was in there. And we're very much uh, a tech-led uh, business that has licensing and all the regulatory pieces uh, attached to it, which we still keep very, very seriously. And uh, some of our product set was going outside of finance, like our rewards as a service, where rewards can be pretty much anything that you attach to a card. So we found that combined with uh, in regulatory environments like the US, where they're very, very strict on using the word bank. And the reason we had bank in our name was when we set up the company, uh, my co-founder wrote a uh, letter to the uh, FCA saying Sunnybank is an old people's home, so why can't we use the word Rails Bank? And somehow got away with it. So it was something we did in the, the heady days of literally incorporating the business. Yeah, but I don't think it serves us a purpose going forward. And I think Rails are is a more, uh, well, it sort of keeps to our, our roots and our DNA, it gives us a more forward look uh, for the business. And, and what is embedded finance? Embedded um, finance, good question. Uh, the, uh, you can also ask what's fintech. It's, yes. it's stuff that nobody really cares about, to be honest. You go to your grandmother and say, I do embedded finance. And your grandmother's yeah. right, said, okay, have a cup of tea. But the uh, embedded finance is really uh, the ability for any company, whether it's a fintech company, a sports club, uh, a retailer, to put financial experiences into their customer journey. And I think one of the uh, classic uh, embedded finance experiences is is Uber. Before uh, finance was embedded to the exiting the cab journey, 
Uh, did they take cash? Did it have change? Did they take cards? And it's all stressful. So with Uber, because it's using embedded finance, it happens at the moment in time in the journey. You just get out and go. And so that's a, uh, probably one of the first great examples of embedded finance. That's a really good example and something that has made our lives all so much easier as a result, users and uh, employees as well. Um, what's the future of fintech? The future of fintech, I, I did a talk at Amazon the other day called Fintech is Dead, Long Live Fintech, because it's really fintech, when it came out, it was, so the moniker came out Q1 2012 when TransferWise is uh, launching, uh, Revolut was launching a little bit later, uh, the Currency Cloud, previous business I founded, had, had launched and things. And it, the whole reason, reason debt with for that uh, movement was a response to the, the financial crash and a distrust of, of finance. And now, luckily, I mean, financial institutions have got a lot of trust back here as well because they are very important to the ecosystem. So fintech, where I see it, sort of disappears in the future. It really becomes brands with embedded finance uh, taking on the consumer finance uh, delivery for your, your general products, not for mortgages and things. And that is what we think fintech is. It's, uh, it's a movement that creates better experiences for the customer. It created new infrastructure. So we rebuilt the, took the lead pipes of old finance out and replaced them with copper and modern stuff like plastic. And, and that was what fintech movement is. And essentially... Fintech may disappear over the next 10 years and it just be called finance. It's, all, it's a bit like asking what the future of money is, really. Yes, exactly. Well, it's true. There's an interesting debate I had with a, a colleague. He posed the question, if you were a product manager and you were asked to design a US dollar today, what would it look like? Because it, beforehand, it had to represent something. So it's on paper stamped it's non-forgeable all those type of features uh, what would it actually look today would it be a digital thing you carry in your digital wallet issued by the central banks the central bank uh, digital currency is possibly what the uh, future of money uh, may look like and then it's just an exchange of value and it's trackable and things so it's what is the future of money it'll always be there because we've got to buy and sell things and i don't think we're going back to the world of exchanging chickens uh, for for goats and stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think we're we're heading that way. Well, what are your thoughts on the future of Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, etc.? Because you're somebody who's built a, a business in this area a number of times and incredibly successfully exited for seven hundred million and so on. So there's sometimes people that think these things are a bit of a fad and, and so on. But I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the future of it. The infrastructure behind uh, Bitcoin as uh, a sort of blockchain technology is super interesting because it uh, can help a track provenance and useful things like that and also allows uh, non-federated or that's federated sort of a, uh, approval so you don't have central approval or something so you can get a source of truth uh, without having to dig down to a single individual so that technology uh, has a huge amount of applicability in the world for digital currencies, for provenance of art, uh, and others, tons of use cases. The problem with it at the moment is the problem that the internet had, uh, and email had back in the early 1990s. So in the early 1990s, uh, Apple had their own email system, so did Microsoft, so did IBM, so did HP, 
uh, and there was a few diehards uh, using internet mail on text terminals using protocol behind the scenes called SMTP, Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. And it wasn't until mass adoption of SMTP because it was an open standard that everybody is able to use email. And behind the scenes today, it's a little thing called SMTP, which allows mail to happen all around the world. The problem with blockchain is uh, there's the venture, some of the venture world wanting to own it, own the protocol. That's the Andreessen Horowitz uh, side. And then you've got the Jack Dorsey side, uh, which I totally believe in, is it should be an open protocol. If you have an open protocol, and I think Tim Berners-Lee is, is working on this at the moment, so open protocol, I think, will really make, move the needle with this. So we're still in experimentation mode. And so, so back to the question on Bitcoin, uh, I, I used to trade for, for a while professionally and, 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 uh, in, in a couple of the banks. And uh, anything that's got so much volatility around it, you can obviously make money, but you can also lose a hell of a lot of money. And so I think Bitcoin is also a, a great experiment uh, that can direct to the, your question earlier about the future of money. Could look something like Bitcoin, but you probably need some more uh, governance and some other uh, assets behind it. So I'm, I'm a fan, but I'm just thinking 10 years ahead, we've got to go open and we've got to uh, embrace uh, that sort of change. And, and also the central banks and regulators have to, to catch up with how that all operates. You talked about lots of different provenances for it. What gets you most excited? Uh, what gets me most excited, and this is a really boring uh, excitement thing, okay, so just a spoiler there, uh, uh, fin crime and, and everything. Mm. If your currency is able to be tracked everywhere, admittedly it has, uh, there's got to be legislation around it, but uh, it allows, it very much makes it incredibly difficult to do fraud and money laundering, and that costs the economy massive amounts of money. Just one simple use case is uh, uh, on Craigslist, uh, for example, Gumtree, so Gumtree. Lots of puppies are advertised. People buy a puppy uh, and send money by UK Faster Payments to the person selling the puppy, and just an empty cardboard box arises, arise if that. Yeah. Now, the money's gone, then goes to, uh, say, uh, an FX broker, and then it goes to a neobank, and then it goes to, say, a, a crypto exchange, and essentially disappears. If money travels and always had provenance, you'll be able to find where that money went to and recall it. And then there's also use, because uh, cash, you want to launder through lots of cash-based businesses and then put it into the uh, legit world. That becomes incredibly difficult if you have a uh, digital-based currency from central banks. So it's, it's not a very exciting use case, but it does no, no, help. It would be a very transformational one. You've had two successful businesses before, as I mentioned, including exiting one for 700 million. What made you decide to do it all over again? Well, I'm an engineer by training, and I started my, my career as, a, as an engineer, and it's curiosity, really. It's about uh, seeing something that is super interesting, uh, seeing a market that might be there. And this, this one at Wales has been one of the, I think, one of the biggest markets opportunities that out there because of the, the way that everything's gone to the cloud, all the infrastructure needs to be rebuilt. And if you rebuild infrastructure into a platform-type business, you can do great things and make it accessible and programmable via APIs. And if you look at how Spotify transforms music, it allowed music to be embedded into anything. 
beforehand, it was really a, a transactional experience where you went, you played, you listened. Uh, now it's it's uh, on your TV, anything can be playing Spotify, and you're in control of it. Uh, the same thing happened when Skype came out. Uh, why was Skype so transformative at the time? You suddenly find the communications experience didn't involve you going, picking up your phone or going to those things with a round dialers on the front. Um, and there was a transaction. It became an experience embedded into, say, a support call experience and others, the television as well. So that, that is what I think is so exciting about embedded finance. It's taking finance, making it programmable, embeddable into any other experience, and hence you open up to massive opportunity and change, change an industry or change a, a, a consumer way of, of interacting with finance or money. And we have lots of small business owners that listen to this show. And I think one of the exciting things is now when I go down the kind of local market or whatever, the access to finance and fast processing that these people have has completely changed that kind of model and allows people to start up so much easier. What do you think are the most exciting use cases for embedded finance? One is sports. There's one we just investigated quite quite heavily. And the other is uh, just general retail. So sports, uh, most clubs, quote, a club quote, claims to have, a very well-known club, claims to have 94 million fans, but their fan platform only has 400,000 names on it. And so if they needed to monetize and engage and understand and get data on all the people they really do interact with, that is a goldmine to the sponsors. And so you start creating a sort of cause and effect loop of driving traffic to your fans who then spend on the sponsors who actually see a cause and effect loop. So currently with fan engagements uh, is very, very macro level, as in they were here or they were at the stadium type of thing, or they happen to be watching Sky because they, oh, yes. they earn the rights on it. Whereas if you can actually understand who is that person, what's their real, what, will they ever come to the stadium or can I give them an in-house stadium experience, which is more than watching on Sky TV. So that's, I find, super exciting of how something I loved uh, personally is how I get just more engaged in sports without having to go to, to the stadium because I might not even be in the country, for example. Who, who do you follow? I, I don't uh, follow football. I follow rugby. Uh, so my, my team is, uh, is uh, Leinster. Okay. It's a uh, challenging time in the rugby world at the moment when it comes to finance. Yes, <laughs> you've seen Wasps and others just recently. But I think it's true. Like, I mean, some of our longer-term listeners will know that I'm a very big Derby County fan and did quite a lot with, say, Derby County campaign earlier in the year. But it is it is a challenge. And one of the things I thought about there was that actually I don't end up giving that much money to the club, right? I don't go to as many games as I used to be able to because I live in London. And, you know, they could, I'd be very happy to sort of, you know, pay for premium features or whatever or interactions. And I just, I can't, right? It still feels a very kind of 20th century model of how a fan engages with a football club, right? Yeah, we were literally, we asked the club and the administrators, you know, what's the most effective thing that we can do to kind of get money? And it was go to games and buy a pint in the stadium. I mean, that that was it, literally. <laughs> No, no, it's, it's tr- I was talking uh, to, to a colleague, Will Carling from Rugby World, we were literally on the phone this morning talking on this whole issue because it's prevalent rugby, tennis, and, and many other uh, of that sort of, yeah, get into the stadium and buy merchandise type of thing. Yeah. And then sell the TV rights to, to Sky. Uh, 
But if you, if you look at Formula One, there's a lady called Ellie Norman who was the first uh, proper head of marketing when Liberty Media pulled Formula One. And uh, she was responsible for uh, uh, Drive to Survive, which I think everybody knows now. Uh, before that, when, when they bought it off Bernie Eccleston, they, they, they asked for the database. And apparently he got this. Is, I don't know if it's a true story, but it's been told us by two, two people independently. Uh, they were given a, a USB stick with 30,000 names on it. And that is all he knew of the millions of people who, who watched Formula One. And they didn't know whether it was a U.S. market or not because they left the U.S. market in, I think, the 1980s. So Drive Survive gave Formula One all this data to understand, oh, my God, there's a huge fan base in the United States. Let's go back. And that's why last year, they were back in uh, and literally last week, the weekend, they were the second one in the U.S. Yeah. So it was it's using something. And embedded finance can also be used for a similar sort of thing. It gives you the data on, on who people are. And engagement and drive survive was an amazing success and great brainwave of how to really deeply understand fans. And I think FC Barcelona, I think, did the same thing with their deal with Spotify because they understand now who who Spotify's got a huge amount of data on their on, on who listens and to what. So that's got good segmentation data coming out of it. That's super useful to to understand more about who you'd market to, for example. And yeah. you can see the psychology of somebody of what they listen to. You can understand whether it's sort of introverts and others and, and stuff, and that is a way of you can then tailor your marketing towards them. So I think there's a, a real use case for huge communities where, especially sports, because would you ever support anybody but Derby? No. No, and that's the beauty of it. It's not like, oh, I'm, I'm Adidas this week because it's more fashionable. Yeah, in t- in terms of sticky customer base, I'm 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 stuck. I'm not I'm not I'm not going anywhere else. Um, so, what do you think the future of kind of sports and and fandom will look like in in ten years? It's out of the stadium. It's premium content. It's reward and driving rewards to your to consumers. If you win, let's let's give everybody a dividend as a, as a reward that you can make and spend on our sponsors. Uh, if you able to have a, a stadium experience, even if you do go to stadium, that you reduce dwell times, which is a massive issue of queuing. Uh, you get in with your, your your card. It gets you access in two seconds to everything else. So it's a really digital experience at stadium. Outside the stadium, when you get onto even Sky or others, you've got all this other content coming at you because you're important. And then there's recognizing who the, the real fans are and bringing them into, okay, the team's going to come and see you. Uh, when they're not playing, for example. And so you can really use that to make it a... a, a and these guys have global brands. Man United, Liverpool uh, are massive, massive, massive global brands, and you can bring them together. It could be media companies over sports companies, right? right. Spot on, spot on. Exactly that. I think it's a genuinely fascinating area and a sort of... The professionalization, I mean, obviously, you know, a lot of these sports, although, you know, rugby, only professional for 30 years, but yeah, that, that really isn't very long, right? That's just like a few play, playing generations. Um, and actually, whilst that bit has been professionalized, the actual sort of business economic side of it is is even even more behind. Um, it will be interesting to see how that happens. Um, one of the things I was really excited to kind of get you on about was kind of what's your advice to founders at the moment, having been a successful entrepreneur three times over, what 
do you think, yeah, we're heading into kind of an economic downturn, lots of VC money dried up because of the public markets, etc. What's your advice to founders? I'm not trying to sound intelligent here because it's a sort of a, I think most MBAs sort of teach in down markets, uh, preserve cash, uh, get some profitability and use M&A as a, uh, as a way of getting growth because actually growth is so cheap, you don't really have a bun fight over who's more valuable because you're all in realistic mode psychologically so you can make deals. So there's that. And also don't give up, uh, persevere. It's difficult. Uh, it's highly stressful. Make sure you uh, have buddies you can talk to and talk out. Uh, so good friends who allow you to talk at them for half an hour, then, then they can ignore you and then carry on with what you were talking about beforehand. Uh, so you do need that sort of mental support uh, as well. Because uh, when you're seeing, like, uh, one time we, at, uh, I think at Currency Cloud, we had like 70 cents or so left in the, in the, in the tank. Uh, and then, they, then the deal came in to, to, for capital. It's, it's quite, uh, it, it's, it's, it takes, drains a lot out of you. It really does in, in down markets. Yeah. So be really focused. Uh, don't look at all the nice sparkly things that you could do. Focus on the key thing, which is cash and cash preservation and revenue preservation and looking after your existing customers because uh, they will get you through the downturn. My first company, we, we went through dot-com uh, uh, boom and bust, and we had two big customers, one called Goldman Sachs and one today is called UBS, but at the time it was called Swiss Bank Corp. Uh, and they both helped us through the downturn uh, massively. And without them, we couldn't, we couldn't have got through it. Uh, how did they help you through the downturn? Well, they said, cut your prices uh, and we'll continue to work with you because uh, they were feeling it too. Because uh, the uh, two of my co-founders at that were ex-Goldman. And uh, they, they, they said, well, there's generally there's fruit on the trading floor. When the fruit disappears and the beer trolley on Friday disappears, uh, you know there's cuts, and so it's like a person. And so th- they said, "You're going to hurt. We're going to hurt, uh, but we'll try and get through this together because we 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 value your services, and I'm sure you value us as a client. So it's you've got to uh, learn to negotiate, uh, sort of almost against yourself, if you say something. And what advice would you give to yourself now with all that you know, if you were sort of starting your journey again, you know, sort of age 24, 25, what would your advice be? I, uh, well, I said to my father once, because this just before 24, 25, when I left the university, I, so I left school, I'd, I failed my A-levels and, uh, and ended up being a professional sailor up on the east coast of the US on a big old tall ship. And, uh, it was good. It was $50 a week, three meal, four meals a day, and it was, it was good fun. But uh, I then said to him, uh, uh, I was going to be a professional musician, and he just said, don't tell your mother. I wish I'd told mother and, and gone into the music uh, world because my buddies, uh, quite a few of them all went into it, and they've all done extremely well in, in that world. So I would have gone into the music world if I told myself, don't do fintech. Don't do music. Don't do do music. What I'm intrigued about the the background to be doing that post school. Like they're quite two different sort of areas: sailing and, and music. Like, what, was that people surrounded you that inspired you into those areas, or is that the school? Yeah, my father uh, took me sailing since I was four years old, and so I sailed by the age of uh, eighteen. I'd sailed pretty much loads of different places in the world. 
because uh, he's in military, so he's in, in Southeast Asia, US, and, and places, and, and 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 Europe and North Germany, and uh, so that was it. I was, I was ingrained in it. Uh, I'd always done out, outside sports, whether it's sailing, skiing, climbing, all that type of thing throughout my teens. So that one was was easier. Music, I became fascinated with this uh, chap called Jimi Hendrix when I was I was about uh, thirteen or so, twelve, thirteen. The second and, uh, most famous, in the, famous Jimmy in the world, right? Exactly. And because I'm playing loads of rugby at school, music and, and doing that law stuff, that's put the primary of my levels as well. <laughs> so. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk us through the transition. So from from sailing, you know, music, then then how did you kind of find fintech? What was then the next, what was the kind of big break? I guess I'm asking. Yes, my, my father gave me some advice because uh, he. I remember I was in Rhode Island, but just docked, uh, and uh, we come. We've been at sea for about a, about a week, and uh, did the. Those days didn't have mobile phones. Just went to the payphone and reverse called the parents just to say hi. I'm alive. It's all okay, uh, and things. And he just said, "I'd like you to." Uh, try and retake your A-levels because uh, he didn't go to university, neither did my grandfather. He just said, look, it, it'll take you, it's only two, two, three years of your life if you go. If you don't go uh, and don't give it a go, what, you'll always look back and think I could have done it. So he said uh, he'd pay for a tutor uh, and so this amazing inspirational tutor uh, called Brad Severson, a Swedish guy. And he, he got me basically four A's and A-levels, and then got the university, uh, got to Warwick University after that. And as an engineer, coming back to how I got into fintech or finance, I worked two years uh, in a company called EDS, which is General Motors, um, in the Luton car plant, which is in the Dunstable uh, warehouse, uh, and doing engineering there. And that was both beautiful places in the world. And I was trained in Detroit, <laughs> great place. And uh, the my buddy who I joined on the first day phoned me up and said, uh, I'm leaving, I'm joining this company called Goldman Sachs and, uh, and uh, come down to London because uh, I'm sure you like London more than Luton. And uh, I said to him, no, it's a great job. Why are you leaving and stuff? He said, well, for the same uh, engineering master, I paid 30 times the money, number one. And then I, I had no idea who Goldman Sachs were myself at the time at all. Had no idea about banking other than just put cards in and do checks and stuff. So I, I then made some phone calls and ended up at uh, Nomura, the Japanese bank, and then Swiss Bank Corp. And the real revelation was at Swiss Bank Corp because it was like uh, a massive tech uh, business as well as also a trading business and some, and some really inspirational people there. Uh, and lots of, quite a lot of the fintech world, actually, provenance was some at Swiss Bank Corp. Yeah. That, that was a real provenance. So is that father... Uh, saying, please just just take some advice from father for once. <laughs> okay, um, but I think the sailing aspect is also really interesting because one of the ethos I have about modern entrepreneurship is it is like the old sort of explorers of the day, where you know you don't always sometimes know where you're going and you're kind of pushing at the edge of things. And I just think it's you know it's it's, it's a really interesting kind of like comparison, you know, like the famous Shackleton advert and. And all of this is a lot, a lot about a lot similar to joining a startup. I think in that because I don't think my sailing was as extreme as that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, map world 
where you have a Declan Laurent, which is pre-GPS, so you can vaguely tell where you are and things. Gosh, yeah, how, uh, how interesting. Um, well, one of the things that I wanted to ask about, obviously, sort of jobs of the future, and just you've recruited lots of people over the years. What, what have you learned? What's the best way of doing it? What's changed? First thing is the type of people are different in the type of stage of company. And uh, I had an interesting chat with uh, one of the uh, leadership team of MasterCard in Lisbon last week. There was a MasterCard event. And he used to be an entrepreneur and built a couple of very well-known uh, businesses and then ended up in the leadership MasterCard pre-flotation. And it's still there today. And uh, he's saying that as a, as a founder, you've got to be realized or the first half of the journey, you're part of the solution. The second half, you're part of the problem. It is also really reflecting on uh, there's builders and there's operators. And the first thing is make sure you don't tie operators into a building job or builders into an operating job. And so getting the people on that journey is, is, is super important because uh, operators are very good at operating something that's been built and they can optimize it. And they can make really good processes. Builders create chaos, get something off the ground and and running and in front of customers and stuff. But it, you can't carry on doing that. Uh, and I think Jeff Bezos is one of the most brilliant people at doing this the way he, he runs Amazon today. Uh, then it's uh, higher on values rather than technical skills. Because if you bring uh, a sense of people with the same sort of core values, uh, you tend to work as a team. And, uh, and by working as a team, you can pick up the technical skills uh, that you actually need in general. So you, you don't need the world's best X, Y, Z. And I think if you look back to sport with uh, Craig Woodward, he had a team of all sorts of weird and wonderful people all bound together by what he called teamship rules, which is the same thing as the, as the core values. And uh, then when Martin took over, it was a, a team of Martin Johnsons in different shapes and sizes. And so there wasn't any diversity in the team and stuff. So core values allow you to be uh, work as a team as you all believe in the same thing. It allows you to create diversity because you, you have, you're not blinkered. And I've seen, I remember one startup raised a Series A and there was like 40 carbon copies in the photograph. <laughs> 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 And uh, so high by uh, values. And one I've learned recently, they have a role called the, the bar raiser, somebody who's totally disconnected with the hire uh, for another area of the business, but understands the core values of the business. And they, they call them the leadership principles in Amazon. And they, they've also got a veto to say, no, it doesn't fit in with it. And it's sort of got that sort of safety valve to ensure and that's quite a brutal way of, of looking at things but it, it can actually create a scale and that is that's my advice I've, I've broken it so many times by mistake or by conscious bias etc but uh, my observation is if you do that correctly you got you can build a company like amazon so it's, it's amazing what you can do and so what the, just coming to the bar raiser so that's somebody in a different part of the organization that interviews somebody then and can sort of pull the um, yeah, pull the veto on on them if they don't think they're raising the bar. Yes, yes they, they, they raise the bar with the interview process. Uh, if you said, I mean, yeah, and so they uh, and they make sure that the, the bar is not too low, 
uh, and it's it's consistent with what they've seen uh, within their colleagues with it within Amazon. Yeah, because sometimes you can just be so desperate to recruit talent because you need people. Exactly that. I think your thesis around operators and builders is really interesting. What are the kind of the key differences and attributes between the two for when you're hiring? Because people probably don't know. Well, it's quite interesting. When you describe it, actually, now I can think much more about I actually can put people in those camps quite easily, but I wouldn't necessarily think of it beforehand of putting myself in one of those. So just talk to us about how you came to that thesis and, and so on. It's That's really interesting. It's one by observation uh, of realising why isn't this working and realising it's not really the person. I, I, I've hired the wrong type of person. It's not the individual. It's sort of phenomenal individual. Uh, so as of mistakes is, is one. But it's sort of also they have a different psychological and, and risk profile don't tend to make up. Uh, the, the, the builders tend to be quite Kool-Aid drinkers. Yeah, let's go and do it. We're, no fear. It doesn't matter about failure. Uh, they, 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 they go forward. And they're always getting that. They do leave a bit of chaos behind. And yeah. I'm a builder, not an operator. So I've left lots of chaos behind. And the... Uh, but operators tend to have lower risk profile. Uh, they tend to be able to optimize and create processes that work and continue to work, uh, hiring teams and, and get, so they, they, they cover off the corner cases. They really make sure that the, the business operates as, as intended and can scale. So builders don't really build the scaling part. They normally build up to the scaling part. Operators tend to, create the scaling side. I'm a, a fascinating guy who built Amazon outside the US is at a Founders Forum event. I, I thought he was a builder, but he, he, he wasn't. He was just an exceptional operator and, and creating a machine uh, type of thing that took Amazon and made it into Europe, Japan, and various other countries around the world. And that, that was a, a fascinating learning discussion because I, I, I wrongly assumed he'd be that sort of total uh, high risk, able to do anything, go for it. He's known as a very, very amazing executive, operating executive. How interesting. And should have asked this in the advice to founders bit, but I'm intrigued by you know, how you look after your mental health when sort of scaling these businesses. Just people you can talk to and talk at. I don't mind you talking at them. And admit things, you've got to take it through. I used to bundle them all up and get very stressed over it. And uh, you've really got to go and talk to people. And realizing when you're talking things through that it's uh, hey, it's, it's not an issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Currently in in Wales, we've got a very good chief people officer, uh, Jenny, who's very good. The first thing she always asks is, "How are you?" Yeah. <laughs> Any one-to-one meeting, and she always does that. And uh, same with uh, Emma, who's who was on here earlier in the uh, marketing side. Remember, I called literally a couple of hours ago. Our first question was, "How are you?" When you got people around. Who, who who asks that sort of question, it's easy to start uh, talking about these issues and, and other things. And also personal friends, uh, partner and everything. It's it's supposed to uh, talk uh, and just share that, that it's, a, it's a really, really crap day today. Yeah. Uh, and admit it. Uh, tomorrow's another day. Move on uh, type of thing. And don't let things dwell in the past. Uh, sort of like petty pettiness or anything like that. You, you've just got to move forward and just let, let things go. 
Uh, yeah, the Dr. Pepper strategy of what's the worst that can happen is always a good one to uh, think about. I agree with that. Got a couple of quick final ones. But one of the things that I know you've been uh, a champion of is the kind of ecosystem and technology um, and the tech ecosystem that's, that's kind of grown massively in the UK over the last few years. I just wonder what your observations were of it and and how you're trying to kind of give back to it. Let's take, let's take the fintech ecosystem. Uh, the reason for saying that is just something we all grew together within a spree to call in the so 2011 onwards. And one of the things, even if we're, we're competitors, we believe finance will change. And for example, uh, I, I know I've got a few of the CEOs of, well, of my competitors, like Prajit at uh, Neom. We get on the phone call every so often just to just to talk things through. Uh, here's how it's business that I don't want to do. Do you guys want to do it and things? And what we, what that sort of ecosystem builds up is a, a, an industry that's focused on the same goal in reality, even if we're competing or helping each other. And so the give back is just to make sure doors open, helping people. Uh, being in contact with them. Um, it's the San Francisco thing is give first or the tech stars uh, mantra is give first and uh, and try and make that happen. And sometimes it can have adverse effects as people trying to grab all your time and you've got to say no. Yeah. And sometimes impolitely say no as well. But the, the, the ecosystem I think is very powerful. What I noticed is a lot of the other finance companies uh, very much almost hate each other. It's like... Uh, two tribes. Also observe on the trading side of the world is a lot of traders will help each other when they're in bad markets or bad situations. So the trading world had an ecosystem which was outside of the, the actual firms hating each other. So it's try not to get a, a sort of market environment where you're all battling because the market's big enough for all of us to make money. And uh, we're not, I don't think tech hasn't become big enough to be the size of Google or Amazon or anything like that yet, or to threaten anti-competition rules. But uh, so we can all help ourselves get there. Now, we've got a different problem when we're the size of Amazon. That's a different issue, to, uh, but that's a nice problem to have. And that's your ambition, right? Yeah, it, it could be, yes. Yeah, I mean, Rails could be the, the financial, like the AWS business of Amazon is a, like the data center layer of the internet. And Rails could be the, the financial layer of the internet. Well, that's really exciting and a great way to um, finish on. Nigel, it's been so great to have you on. You don't have some of the biggest public profile ever, um, yet your story is incredible and amazing. So it's been fascinating. Thanks for taking the time to share it with us. No, thank you for the invitation, Jimmy. And good luck on all the rest of the podcast. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.